Yeah, before we get into the uh, passage of study for this morning, last week David Roper made some comments about the church that were disturbing to some. If you missed the service last week, you can uh, pick up his uh, sermon, copy the sermon in the sermon rack in the lobby. I had three or four people ask me, is the church about to break up? I didn't know it. I thought everybody was happy. I'm happy with it. What's wrong? Uh, the church is not about to break up, and it's true that uh, Gary Merkel has joined the Mooney Church. Uh, not really. Uh, the uh, Nobody's about to be fired, and the elders are uh, in a spirit of unity. We enjoy. We don't always agree in everything, but we're in a real unity of spirit, and it's got many points to disagree about. That's always the case. The thing that David was referring to last week was something that's not a imminent church split or breakup. It is a problem that should be taken seriously. And it's always it's a problem that perennially plagues churches. That is, when things don't go the way you want them to go, there's a tendency to, to, to become critical and to grumble and complain. And we don't realize how serious that is. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, it's a very dangerous thing to, to tamper with the unity of Spirit in the, within the church, uh, church of God. And what he, what he was referring to is uh, there are some who are dissatisfied present with certain things, and uh, uh, there is a tendency to grumble and complain when, when things don't go the way you want them to or when there are problem. And of course there are problems as there always are. Things are not done perfectly. Now, let me give you a couple of suggestions. If you uh, if something is not being handled the way you think it should or it's not going the way you want. One is find out uh, if you hear something, find out if it's really true. Now the way to do that is not to ask all your friends find out what have you heard but to go directly to the person who's involved, uh, source of authority get from the horse's mouth and find out what the, the truth is. I talked with somebody yesterday, and they were upset over something, and the problem was just miscommunication. They had heard a uh, uh, couple of things secondhand, and they had garbled, and were very upset, very unnecessarily. Um, so go directly to the person. We're all one body here. We're not trying to hide something. Uh, we are, are wanting to, to enjoy uh, an openness and oneness together with, with everybody. Uh, second thing is, if you do find something that you don't like, not what should be, then see what constructive steps you can take to help solve the problem. Maybe we're under uh, uh, understaffed in certain ways. I know in the Sunday school, children's Sunday school, some have complained about problems there, and part of the problem is lack of personnel. So rather than complaining, say, here I am. I'll be willing to, to help uh, meet the need. Or pray. Or in your words, try to offer encouragement to, to those who are involved and appreciation for the good that you do see. Uh, do, do any of you have any questions about anything that you've heard or complained about or upset about or anything? We'd be glad. You know, we are. We want to be open and, and uh, take care of anything. If you've got anything you'd like to, to deal with it. We had, uh, I had one major complaint after the service last Last hour, Nick Ivins came up and he said he wanted to know when we could have some fiddling in the church. He'd been to Weezer, was at Weezer last night and complained over our music program. 
Well, I assured him that if we did that, there'd be others who complain, probably. Uh, but we might someday. Who knows? Who knows? Well, if you have anything that you want to talk about, just just uh, grab one of us and and uh, uh, let's all remember that we are one body in Christ. Whether we like it or not, we're we're together and members of one another, as the apostle says. And therefore, we need to to come together and work together and on whatever problems and challenges confront us. Let's pray before we look into the Word. Lord, we thank You for all that You are to us. Thank You for Your love, Your patience, Your kindness. We thank You for Your goodness and Your grace towards us. Lord, we thank You that You have made us part of a body, one body in Christ with our brothers and sisters. We ask that you would help us to appreciate that. Help us to seek to build up and edify the body. I'll do our part. Lord, we pray that you will preserve us from the often undetected enemy of grumbling and complaining, being critical. Lord, help us to hold our tongues and see that the enemy wants to tear us apart in in subtle ways. We pray that we might experience a unity of love and peace and fellowship as you desire. We pray as we look into your word that you would open our hearts and meet our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus Christ is a real conundrum to man. What are we supposed to do with him? Do we reject him as a kook, as many do? Do we write him off? as a religious teacher whose teachings were nice but don't really have relevance to the 20th century? Or do we give him lip service and then relegate him to the periphery of life? Or do we make him the center of life? Do we acknowledge that he is the source of goodness and power and fulfillment for us? Well, this morning we want to look at a group of people who rejected Jesus Christ, an individual who was intrigued by Christ, uh, or by uh, intrigued with, but rejected Christ's messenger, John the Baptist, forerunner. And then we want to examine some of the reasons why we should make him the center of our lives. Let's look at, at uh, Matthew chapter 13 starting at verse 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus had been rejected earlier in Nazareth, his hometown, as is recorded in Luke chapter 4. And here he's rejected again. This time he's rejected because he didn't fit their preconception. They had it all figured out how God was going to work 
and what the Messiah was going to be like. They, in spite of the fact that, that Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In spite of the fact that Isaiah said that the Messiah would be like that, nevertheless they still look for a person of regal power and majesty. They knew that the Messiah would be a general who would lead Israel in a successful rebellion against Rome and establish Israel as God's, the center of God's kingdom upon earth. He wasn't going to be some plain, old, vanilla, theologically untrained carpenter's son. Or they had known Jesus since, since boyhood. Who did he think he was, spouting forth all this wisdom? Why, he hadn't been to rabbi school. And the presumption to perform miracles. Why, who did he think he was, a prophet or something? They had their minds made up. They had figured it all out, what he was going to be like. And they had canonized their own interpretations of Scripture, their own ideas, rather than actually looking at the Scriptures to see what the Messiah would be like. And therefore they were offended at Jesus and rejected him. They remind me of many people uh, of today who do the same sort of thing. They have their minds made up before they look at the facts. They know the ways that God must be and therefore fail to recognize or be open to the ways that God really is. They start with certain preconceptions. What would be narrow of God to demand that all people come to salvation only through Jesus Christ? Or it would be cruel of God to send people to hell just for not believing the right thing. Or God couldn't be against extramarital sex because it's so fun. And because they have these preconceptions, then they fail to submit themselves to the real God who is there. And they stumble and fall. They remind me of a man I heard about one time who was convinced that he was dead. Now, his friends became very concerned, as you would if one of your friends said, no, don't talk to me, I'm dead. And so they took him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist went through all sorts of therapies with him to try to convince him that he really was alive. But they all failed. And finally, at the last-ditch effort, the psychiatrist thought of something else. He took out his medical books and he explained to the man about the circulatory system and how it works. And they took him to a city morgue and he took a knife with him and he started pricking all of the corpses. And he said, look, dead men don't bleed, right? Dead men nodded his head. And so the doctor now thought, now he's ready. He says, give me your hand. And he stuck out his hand and he pricked it with his knife. The man looked down and he says, Doc, what do you know? Dead men do bleed after all. That's the way many people are. They have their minds made up. The facts are not going to confuse them. And many people reject the truth of God for that reason. Now, others reject uh, God for different reasons. In our next story, we're going uh, to see uh, some of those. Verses 1 to 12 of chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch of uh, heard uh, the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. 
He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they regarded him as a prophet. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now this Herod was not Herod the Great, uh, who was king of uh, Palestine during uh, Jesus' infancy. That Herod was the one who was known for his slaughter of all the children in Bethlehem. Uh, Herod the Great ruled from 47 to 4 B.C., and this Herod is his son, Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom among three of his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and, and Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was given two portions of the land, the portion called Galilee, which is just the west of the Sea of Galilee and touching the sea, and then a portion called Priya, which is east of the Jordan, uh, further south, near uh, uh, next to uh, Judea and Samaria. We're told that when Herod, the Tetrarch, or ruler of this region, heard about uh, Jesus, his, his ministry, his miracles, then he exclaimed, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. This gives occasion for Matthew then to digress a bit and to... Uh, explain uh, how John the Baptist was killed. John had confronted Herod, had denounced his marriage with Herodias, his brother's wife, because it was against the Mosaic law to marry your brother's wife while your brother was still alive, according to Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21. He'd had the courage to denounce them, even though Herod was the the ruler of the land. Well, Herod was upset that this... uh, prophet could rebuke him and therefore threw him in prison. We're told that in verse 5 that he wanted to put him to death, but at this point he feared the multitude. He's afraid that since John was so popular that there'd be an uprising uh, if he were to kill John the Baptist. So he put him in prison. Then look at Mark chapter 6, verse 20. We see another factor that's important for us to understand about Herod. Look at 19 and 20. Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to kill him and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, for he used to enjoy listening to him. Apparently, Herod was first of all angered at John, threw him in prison, and then his wife, Rhodius, said, look, let's just do away with him, kill him. But Herod, by this point, started talking to John and listening to him. He was intrigued. And now he didn't want to put him to death because he recognized that he was a holy and righteous man. See, Herod was a man in turmoil. 
On the one hand, he hated John because he wasn't about to repent and change his life. On the other hand, he knew deep down that John was really right, that what he was saying was true, that John was a messenger of God. But the change was too much of a threat for Herod. He had great status to maintain as the the tetrarch, the ruler of the whole region. And besides, we see that that he had a basic fear of man. In verse 9, we're told that he didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but though he uh, didn't want to, he feared even more having his friends think that he would go back on his word. At a birthday party, uh, his uh, stepdaughter, Salome danced before him, Herodias' daughter. Uh, and he said, I'll give you anything you want. He asked her mother and he said, and, and according to her mother's command, she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter brought to me. And Herod, though he didn't want to do it, submitted to her request because he didn't want his guests to think that he was a sink. So Herod was in turmoil. He was undecided. He was in tension because he knew that John was really true. But he didn't want to repent. He didn't want to turn his, his life around. He's like many people who are much the same. I ran across a, a quotation that I found very enlightening and very startling. From Sir Kenneth Clark's autobiography. Many of you know Sir Kenneth Clark from his uh, TV series America and Civilization that were on PBS a few years ago and the books that he uh, were widely published with the same name. He says this in his autobiography. I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but it not seemed to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had ever known before. This state of mind lasted for several minutes, and wonderful though it was, posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps, after all, it was a delusion. For I was in every way unworthy of receiving such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course but that I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure. And all of the memory of this experience is saved. It still helps me understand the joys of the saints. That's a remarkable statement. Sir Kenneth Clark says, I know that I had an experience with God, but it was threatening to me. To respond to that revelation that God gave me sitting in that church would, would mean that I'd have to reform my life. It mean that I would chance the misunderstanding of my family. They'd think I was a fool. I'd have to redirect the course of the rest of my life. No, he's a brilliant man intellectually. He shows himself here to be at heart a fool because he deceives himself into thinking it was actually right to harden his heart. He said, I made no effort to retain the effects of this experience. And I think I was right because I was too deeply embedded in the world. He said, I think it was right to harden my heart against the revelation that God was given me, had given me, because change would be too radical for me. 
Unfortunately, many people are like that. It's not that they... The people of Nazareth rejected the truth because they had their minds made up ahead of time what the Messiah would be like and Jesus just didn't fit their preconceptions. But Herod is something different. He sensed and knew that John the Baptist's message was true and yet he deliberately hardened his heart. Just as Sir Kenneth Clark did. Many people reject God in that way. They see the truth. They recognize it, but just turn him off. And we as Christians even do that in, in some ways. In lesser ways, of course. I don't know about you, but sometimes I uh, will have my heart set on something I want to purchase or some way I want to use my money. And then read an article about starvation in Cambodia or get a, a letter about some mission to me that, uh, project that needs financing. And sometimes I'll harden my heart. Say, I just don't want to see it. I don't want to be aware. Don't tell me about it. Let me, let me purchase and, uh, what I want. Do with what I want with the money first. Or sometimes we have a prompting from the Holy Spirit to share Jesus Christ with a friend. And yet we start thinking, well, if I do, he might think I'm a weirdo, a pushy religious fanatic. And above all, I don't want to be like that. And so like Herod, we fear men more than God and harden our hearts to the truth that God has brought our way. Well, if we open our hearts to God, though, it can be quite threatening. So why should we? Why should we let Jesus Christ meddle with our lives and risk a complete and radical change and turnabout? All of us have built some sort of structure for our lives. There are certain ways that we're used to relating to people, certain ways that we have, have decided for ourselves how to organize and spend our time and money, certain priorities we've established, certain ways that we have, have uh, devised for ourselves of achieving pleasure and satisfaction, certain plans for the future. And though we might not be entirely happy with our lives, at least it's comfortable. At least it's known. We're used to it. But to let Jesus Christ become Lord of the life, whether that's initially when we uh, become Christians, or even on an everyday experience, for us who are already Christians, is a threatening thing. It leads into the unknown. What is he going to do with me? And we must ask the question of ourselves, why should I let him come into my life and meddle with it and, and change things around? Well, the next section gives us two answers for that. We're told in the next section, verses 13 to 21, that, that we should, it's worthwhile to let Jesus Christ be Lord of our lives because He's always available. Number two, He's more than sufficient to meet our needs. Now when Jesus heard it, He withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by Himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed Him on foot from the city. And when He came out, He saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desolate, and the time is already past. So send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them to here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline in the grass, 
He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave to the multitude. They all ate and were satisfied. And he picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about five thousand men who ate, besides from women, uh, the women and children. And we're told in verse 12 that the disciples of John the Baptist reported John's death to Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there to a lonely place. He wanted to be by himself. John was his beloved cousin. And Jesus also recognized that John was a righteous man. He says elsewhere that, that none on earth has been as, as uh, righteous as John. And I'm sure that Jesus was also thinking about his own life. John's execution for confronting the religious, political establishment was the same end that Jesus was going to have to meet. And he was God in the flesh, but he was also fully human. We know from the Garden of Gethsemane that it was a struggle for him to think about actually going through with a, a torturous, painful death on the cross. He wanted to be by himself, commune with his Father. And yet the people heard that he had gone across the, the, the lake, and so they took off on foot and went around and met him. Now, if we had been Jesus, we probably would have said at that point, won't you people ever leave me alone? I need to be by myself for a while, you know. Look, if you really want to talk to me, call up my secretary and make an appointment. That's the way we get. We think, oh, well, you know, it's a Saturday, or I'm, I'm on vacation. I'm supposed to be serving myself and having a good time, not reaching out and ministering to people around me. But Jesus is not like that. He had compassion upon them. And he, he healed their sick, reached out to them. Now we see in verse 22 that he did uh, see that his own needs were met, but he just postponed the meeting of them. He got away later that night to be by himself. But he's always available. And we need that. We need somebody who's always available to us, who will understand us, love us, accept us, who won't ever turn us off. He's always there to, to meet our needs and to hear us. And Jesus is like that. We also learn from the story that he's more than sufficient to meet our needs. It was evening time. It's time to go uh, have some dinner. And the people who were so enthralled with Jesus and his healing and his teaching ministry that they didn't want to go home and miss anything. So the disciples said, look, Lord, why don't you just dismiss the crowd because they need to eat. We don't want to have, you know, bad uh, write-ups in the newspaper of, of uh, hundreds of people uh, die at a uh, religious gathering by the shore or anything like that. Uh, I want you to send him away. And at this point, Jesus says, no, you feed them. Now, he could have said, don't worry about it, guys. I'm going to perform a miracle in just a few minutes and, and provide enough food for everybody. But he wanted that miracle to be not only an act of compassion upon them, he wanted it to be a tool for teaching spiritual truth to the disciples as well. So the first thing he does is makes them feel their need. He says, you feed them. Hey, we feed them. Lord, all we have is two fish and five loaves of bread. And what is that with 5,000 men plus women and children? 
Indeed, it's not very much. But he wanted them to feel their inadequacy, their impotence. And then he moved in. He does the same with us. He brings us to points in which we uh, can feel and sense our own inadequacy. We don't have what it takes. And we should rejoice at those times. Because he likewise wants us to, us to cast ourselves upon him and find from him the resources we need. We shouldn't gripe and complain when we don't know where we're going to get the money to pay the rent or beating our head against the wall trying to figure out how to deal with uh, one of these rebellious teenagers here. When a relationship's going sour or, or the job is frustrating and you can't get it done or you have ministry needs that you can't work out, those are the times to rejoice and praise God because He is doing the same with you as he was with the disciples, helping you see your need that you'll go to him. Once the disciples perceive their need, then he says, uh, bring them here to me. He takes the loaves, multiplies them, feeds the whole crowd. Notice in verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Why does Matthew mention that there were 12 baskets full were left over? Well, the point is that there's more than enough of, uh, to go around. There's more than enough of Jesus to meet our needs. It's not as if he can satisfy a little bit. He's not just a pill that we take to, to help out. He is the answer. He can meet our needs fully. Look at what he says in Matthew 16, verses 8 and 9. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves because you have no bread? Do you not yet understand to remember the five loaves of the five thousand, how many large baskets you took up? In other words, they're left over. Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets you took up? It was in chapter 15. Apostle John tells us in John 6 that the day after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus gave his bread of life discourse and explained at length that this miracle was a sign. The point of which was, he says in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, unfortunately, we many times uh, unnecessarily worry ourselves. We let ourselves get caught up in complaining and self-pity because we don't have all that we want. Now, many times it's merely uh, a problem that we're pampering ourselves. For instance, we complain about our houses being too small and air conditioner doesn't work and, and we have to work too hard. I read that in 1945, the average American home was 1,000 square feet. They didn't have air conditioning. Today, it's 1,700 square feet, and, and many of us do have air conditioning. And yet we complain because our house is not as big as the guy down the street. We complain that we have to work too long, 40 or 50 hours a week with guaranteed coffee breaks, uh, one by the union and... and uh, two weeks vacation and ten holidays a year. We forget that a hundred years ago our, our forefathers couldn't work 40 or 50 hours a week and make a living. They didn't have paid vacations. 
I read in the People's Republic of China today, the average agricultural worker works from 4.30 in the morning till 7 at night, six days a week. Yet we feel sorry for ourselves. For many of us, it's merely because we're pampered and we pamper ourselves. Now, for others, there are problems that are very severe and very difficult to deal with. Many have marriages that seem intolerable. Others who are single have singleness that seems intolerable and they want to be married. Some have health problems that are painful and, and difficult to deal with and, and insoluble. Many have emotional and psychological scars and uh, difficulties that, that uh, wreck the psyche and bring, uh, bring distress daily. And these are difficult to deal with. And yet, whatever our problems, Jesus still says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Unless he doesn't have an adequate job. Unless his family situation is not perfect. Uh, unless he uh, can't play golf twice a week. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Unless he doesn't have enough money. Unless his house is not big enough, he doesn't have a new car. But he doesn't say those things. He doesn't make the exceptions. He says if we come to him and feed upon him, then we can indeed be satisfied, no matter what our circumstances. We might be in a Siberian prison camp. But he still says the same thing. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He wants us to take him at his word. Let's examine our lives for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel satisfied with life right now? Contented? Filled? Well, if not, you might blame it on many things. Many circumstances that are not the way you want. But the real problem is, as Jesus says, failure to come to Him and believe on Him. That is the real secret to our contentment. He offers Himself to us. He says, if you want life, here it is. As the bread of life, He gives us a relationship with God. He gives us a security of an eternal destiny. He gives us the satisfaction of being able to live with purpose every day as we know that we're serving the living God in our activity. He gives us contentment and satisfaction in any circumstance. Peace of mind and joy and love. He gives us the power to live righteously and not be controlled by moodiness and, and impatience and irritability and things that drag us down. He is the bread of life. When he fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full. He is more than sufficient to meet our needs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are more than sufficient. We thank you that you can fill us up. We confess that we let ourselves indulge in self-pity. We compare ourselves with others and their plights. We value too much the circumstantial things of life, the physical comforts and circumstances. Lord, we thank you right now for where you have each of us. The relationships you've put us in, the frustrations that we undergo. And we thank you that in the midst of those, we can be filled with you. Help us to learn that. 
Amen.